0: I wouldn't want to own a house there unless you've already gotten beyond your time freedom point. We're already making your 10 grand or 12 grand or so forth in passive income because you're basically making somebody else who owns this house the money rather than for yourself. So in that scenario, and I've said this for a long time, is unless there are some certain circumstances, I would recommend to be a tenant rather than an owner. Now, here comes the reason why. When you look at it through the investing lens, there are things that can help make it a little easier. And one of the things that I found to be one of the best, very quick identifiers is what's called the 1% rule.
1: Welcome to the picture of wealth or TPOW as we call it. I am your host Dustin Service. I'm excited to have Axel Mierhofer on the show today. Axel, thanks a lot for being on the show. I've been on your show recently, and we had some good debates. Now you are uh, an ex-U.S. Air Force officer, freelance business consultant, full-time family man. But really, what we're talking about today is your experience with 20 years plus in real estate and real estate investing, which is, you know, in our minds, part of a proper wealth and a balanced, you know, wealth plan. And uh, I'm eager to learn what you're teaching people about investing in real estate and using that as a tool to live, uh, you know, you call it Ideal Wealth Growers is your brand online. So thanks a lot for being on the show, Axel.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Dustin, for having me.
1: So, uh, Axel, I want to start uh, very open and honest about something I said on your podcast. <laughs> this is off real estate topic, but about Tesla right. and the brand. And we we're comparing it to, you know, more secure businesses that have big profit and all that stuff. And I did say that Tesla is not very profitable well i went and did a little research and they actually uh now i know that numbers can be cooked and they can move stuff around and make it but it is not nothing it is actually something and i have spent a lot of time actually since we visited listening to elon on joe rogan's podcast and a couple other podcasts just about the vision is way bigger than the car so this is a major side tangent which i didn't have my notes but Can you give me why you sort of believe in sort of Tesla and that sort of model? And then we'll get to real estate, I know, but I had to ask.
0: See, I mean, you mentioned it. And when we talked in in my show and also before, I'm originally from Germany. And when I came over to the United States, I would say at that time, Germany was probably further advanced or further ahead, if you want to, in things that had to do with sustainability and environmental consciousness and stuff like that. But there were other than, you know, companies that make solar panels or stuff like that, there wasn't really anybody that I was aware of who was really pushing in that direction. And when I kind of in a sense discovered Tesla way too late, I wish I would have discovered it like 2010 or something like that. Um, that was when Master Part 2 was just coming out and I looked at it. I'm I'm somebody who likes to research stuff. And it basically said the whole purpose of the company is to help humanity to basically have a sustainable future and then underneath that is electrification of transport right and using sustainable sources for energy and so the whole thing about tesla is you i always have always said for me they basically are a technology company which one of the first products is a computer on four wheels right and which is also the huge distinction between their product and pretty much everything else that's out on the market and even to this day i mean you have to keep in mind they're approaching rapidly their 20th anniversary right Um their, their first product i think came out like 2008 or something like that it's pretty close to the iphone to this day there is no company in the automobile industry that can send a software update to their product. I give you a little example of how far this can go. NHTSA is the US oversight organization for safety in transport, not just cars, also trucks and all this other stuff. And they had gotten some complaints that people were afraid to get their fingers stuck when you hold out your hand and then you push the button to raise your window. Tesla sent an over-the-air update that increased the sensitivity for the sensor to not close the window when it meets even the slightest resistance. And everybody else, if you wanted to do that, they would say you have to come into the dealership and get your windows fixed or your whatever, right? And not even talking about the battery management. But that's why I'm saying it's basically a computer on four wheels. Anybody who dives a little deeper has probably by now seen they sell solar panels, but not just for the sake of solar panels. They put solar panels next to charging stations. They're the only car company, if you want to go with that name, that also has its own charging network to the order of 45,000 gas station pumps, basically. 45,000 across the world by now and growing rapidly. They basically, not just giving you the computer and wheels, they also give you basically like any other computer, the little black box, which helps you to charge the battery of your laptop, right? Like of your computer. But then they also go and say, well, how about for companies that are larger scale, they build something now called big mega packs. Where each of those things can basically power like hundreds of houses. If there's a power outage and large utility companies are now getting mega packs instead of fired power plants, because a battery it's basically the battery the size of a shipping container it's like instantaneous when the power goes a little bit down the battery immediately kicks in you don't have to start a power plant and you don't have to burn gas or coal or oil or anything like that And I mean, anybody who is a little bit into it, like I am, you know, they have full self driving. That's basically, and I know Elon Musk has promised it for years and years and years, but sooner or later, they're going to figure out between AI and the computer system in the car that the thing can drive itself. Right. And so that's, yeah. all of that is computer technology and software technology and the ultimate thing that is probably five years away from us is Optimus, right, which is also a Tesla product where they're saying there are so many boring and dangerous jobs in all kinds of manufacturing and mining and stuff like that. Imagine you could build a robot that can do these jobs and then go from there and say, okay, well, you're going to also want somebody for your wife to clean the dishes and the floors and stuff like that. Right. So that's maybe another decade. But all these kind of things, if you really bring him back and say, well, everybody says this is a car company and that's what all the news says. That's why I'm saying to me, this is basically uh, you can say an AI or high tech company that just happens to develop product after product after product that is basically sustainable, you know, environmentally conscious and friendly, and it advances humanity to a cleaner future, but not a worse future, not this doom and gloom stuff. Right. And so with all of that being said, and anybody is more than welcome to dig a little deeper, like you seem to have been inspired to do. It's pretty amazing what they're doing. And that's why I'm saying this is the only stock that I have. Everything else is pretty much real estate and gold and crypto and so forth.
1: The Tesla products are always so good. I'm looking at the Tesla website for the solar panels. And as you're talking, I'm envisioning like an apple. Like the product, like solar panels can be kind of ugly depending on what application they are, but these look pretty slick. So would they be expensive? Of course they would. Would they be efficient? Yes. But at the same time, it's just a matter of time before it gets yeah, you Well, know, What, what Tesla actually
0: does, and you're right, you're hitting on a, on a great point, is when I call something environmental consciousness, it is really enveloping your life. So Tesla solar roof, for example, if you put that in the search engine for anybody listening to us you will see that for a new-built house or a house that needs a new roof anyway, it is actually equivalent in price if you had to replace your roof, the standard roof plus solar panels, or you take a Tesla solar roof. The difference is the solar roof is fully integrated. Now, that would be just saying, okay, so now I have solar on my roof. But when you buy that from Tesla, you also get something called the power wall, which is basically the battery that the solar panels are filling the electricity in And that makes you independent whether you have hurricanes or thunderstorms or wildfires. That power wall is able to power your house for about three to five days. Now, the other thing is with that solar roof, you can also charge your Tesla. People always say, well, I wouldn't buy an electric car because there aren't enough charging stations. I'm always saying, since when did you have ever in your life a car where the gas tank was full every time you get up in the morning? Well, that's the reality of an electric car like you you can either charge overnight from the electricity grid at the lowest rates or you let it sit there during the day or after work or whatever depending on time of year and you charge it from your solar roof either way it's a tiny tiny fraction on what a gallon of gas costs you but it's always full in the morning or in the evening but depending on when you charge or at work right so Anybody who says, Okay, I need more charging stations, my question is, how many days do you go more than three hundred miles? Nobody does other than you're going on vacation or something, right? So these are all the kinds of things, and I'm not saying this to from a defensive perspective. It's just a fascination on how somebody can say, Master plan is to say we want the whole world to develop an economic environmental consciousness, and we want to be the ones that at least make significant strides on getting there.
1: That's awesome. Well, you, you're listening to Axel, who is the, uh, the leader of Ideal Wealth Grower. We had a, an awesome discussion about Tesla, but I wanna hear about real estate. So my main question is in your space, uh, help listener understand first off where you are or where some of your properties are, or if you've had properties that led to this lifestyle, which I, I love and I think it's why we've connected is realizing that you're okay sooner in life than you know the old work hard build up accumulate as much as you can and then at 60 that's sort of like the cue to then relax but if you have some tools or some optics on I am okay now and I'm only 38 or I'm okay now and I'm 48 so sooner than what maybe retirement books the finance industry whatever says so help us understand your journey to using real estate as a lifestyle tool to give you the lifestyle that you want sooner than retirement.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for asking that question. Well, for one, I wanted to see, even though we just spoke about stocks, the one single one that I have, but fundamentally, I wanted to find out what do people do who actually invest for the long term and what are they investing in and why? And what I found that a lot of successful people do is invest in real estate. There are many, many different kinds of real estate. I got stuck on Arnold Schwarzenegger because I was curious what he's doing with all the money from the movies when he was like the biggest like (laughs) Terminator and so forth. And he bought residential real estate first and then added more and more and more became one of the big real estate owners in California, you know, early, early on when he was still in the bodybuilding and, and early movie stuff and That kind of impressed me and I started studying it a little more. And there are certain things that I believe are important and I would love to help your listeners to realize them. Real estate, for example, goes to the fundamental needs like Maslow's Pyramid of Needs, which basically said what human beings fundamentally look for is shelter, security, and food. Those three things you kind of have to have, right? Shelter being basically another word for real estate. The other part that is the government realizes that it can't provide shelter for everybody and it's not desirable for a government-provided shelter anyway. So most of the government shelter is called prison. Won't really want that. But then it also realizes, okay, if we don't give it an incentive for people to actually provide shelter that they don't use for themselves, so basically investing in real estate so other people can use it, then most likely nobody's going to do it. So that's why if you go to Ideal Wets Grower, The word ideal, yes, I use ideal because I strongly believe that real estate, especially residential real estate, is almost ideal as an investment. But it's also an abbreviation. The I in ideal stands for the income, meaning like the income you're making from rent. The D stands for depreciation. And here's something, I don't know how many of your listeners are actually aware of this. The government looks at a single-family, three-bedroom, two-bath house like a machine. If you and I had a business and we're making cars, since we have been talking about cars, then the machines to make the cars can be depreciated in different lengths, meaning like a machine that, for example, makes a battery cell lasts, let's say, on average, seven years. And the government would say, okay, if you buy it for $70,000, you can... Depreciated by $10,000 on your books every year because the thing is just depreciating and then ultimately you need to buy a new one. That same thing, strange as it might sound, the government also says for an investment property. So when you buy a house, you have 27 and a half years to depreciate. So if we take an example, you were to buy a $275,000 house every year, you can depreciate that with $10,000 on your tax return. So you can reduce your income basically by $10,000 of depreciation. So that's the D then the E is equity. You buy the house, that $275,000 house, and it's sitting there and your property management is putting tenants in. This brings in the income, meaning like the rent, but at the same time, even if the value, obviously the value of the house is not really in that sense changing. It's the same house month after month, year after year. But inflation alone, like if we have 5% inflation, it would make sense that the house is going to get more expensive. Nothing else changes by that amount, by 5%. Most people say when we had very low inflation, real estate was appreciating about 3 or 4%. Right now, I would say it appreciates probably a little more. But that $275,000 house, if that appreciates, just let's say we are very conservative and say it appreciates 4%. Right, So that's about $12,000 or something like that. And we only put 20% into that house, which is roughly $50,000, a little more. And it increased by $12,000, let's say through 2023, that's a pretty nice, like what's that 20% or something like that, or 15% appreciation. This means these $12,000 that you would have to now put in more to buy the house is the equity. That's in the house. So the equity is what's the difference between what you bought it for and what it would be worth, plus what you put in and down payment. So that is the E for the equity. Then the A is the appreciation over time, right? We just went through one year, but if you average it out over the time that you hold it, it appreciates at a certain rate. This year might be 5%, next year might be 3%. So that's the appreciation of the value. And then the L is leverage. And I kind of hinted to that already. Because we always invest in these properties by only putting 20%. And in some rare cases, we just had one of our tribe members getting an offer for 100% financing, which was kind of unusual, very rare. Normally you put 20% down and 80% from the bank. And I always joke that the beauty is that the government says, we value you so much, Dustin or Axel, for putting the shelter out there for families, you can keep 100% of the profits. So the bank gives you 80%, you put in 20%, but if it increases by 12,000, you're allowed to keep the whole 12,000, right? So that's pretty nice. So these are the things where the word idea comes from, Wealth is what we ultimately want to grow, obviously. And grower is also an abbreviation that is kind of the methodology that I'm using for the mentoring of our clients. When somebody says, okay, I like what I hear, I want to invest in residential real estate, but I'm not feeling enough of an expert or knowledgeable enough to do it on my own. I want somebody who is doing it and has been doing it, who can show me what portfolio he has built and make all the relationships for lenders, for property providers and so forth available, which is in a nutshell what I do. Then you sign up and we have mentoring sessions to help you understand and help you invest and so forth. And that, like I said, is also... An abbreviation where the G stands for one, the big G is, so to speak, the big, hairy, audacious goal. And then we have little Gs. Those are kind of sub-goals, right? If you say my big, hairy, audacious goal is in 10 years, I want to have $10,000 passive income. That's a pretty, pretty big goal. But a sub-goal might be in the first six months of mentoring, I want to at least get my first property pretty close to closing. So, that would be a sub goal. Or you might have a sub goal to say, My goal is it to be able to buy one house at least every year as an investment. So, that's the G. Then the R stands for what is your current reality? What is your financial situation? How much money can you currently invest? Are there any things that we need to clean up? So, current reality, then we have the O, and the O should actually be two O's, but then it wouldn't make the word grower. So I kept one O <laughs> in that sense for <laughs> obstacles and opportunities. Certain people might have other kinds of mistakes, not financial, but other mistakes that they may have made that they see as obstacles they want to overcome. One of the big ones, just to weave that in here, I even went as far as building and writing a mindset manual. I said, I feel these days, and I'm really curious, Dustin, what you think about that. But I feel a lot of people, when I ask them, independent of what kind of investing or stuff they want to do, that the way they talk about themselves, about their life, about their circumstance, oftentimes sounds to me like a a victim. And so I, I wrote a mindset manual that people can download for free where I'm trying to get people to understand on the scale of how much of a victim are you, or how much are you a creator of your own future? Where are you on that scale? And then provide some exercises and stories and encouragement to see how can you get more in the direction of creator of your own future. So that would be basically the tension between obstacle and opportunity. Opportunity obviously also goes in the direction to find out what kind of stuff do you like or prefer. Are you okay with renovated properties? Do you rather have new build properties? Do you want to do long-term rental or rather short-term rental or a combination? Kind of figuring out where you are, what you want and what you want to start out with. And then the W is standing for what actions will you take? I always say this is kind of like a letter for homework because obviously through the mentoring sessions, we discuss things I'm trying to educate, but then there needs to be action for the next two weeks or so until we meet again to make progress. And then when we meet again, let's say two weeks later, which is a pretty typical interval, we would go to the E and say, okay, so what was the experience? Like, let's say you said to me, I would really love to invest in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then the homework is to say, okay, well then go and see what you can find on Redfin and Zillow and so forth. What kind of properties that you think would be suitable for you can you find? And run them to tools like Deal Check or um, Rentometer or stuff like that. And then basically, we discuss two weeks later did you find any? How did it go? Was it confusing and so forth? And did this activity generate any results? It might be hey, I looked at it and I found out I can find properties, but nobody wants to pay the rent that I want. Or I found a house that looks pretty interesting and I think I could get the rent. And then we look at it together and we find out, yeah, after you put another 100000 renovation in there. Or it might be the perfect place, right? So that would be the results. And in a sense, this is a cyclical thing because the question at the end of discussing the results is always, do these results change any of the goals, especially the sub-goals that we identified under the G. Now, the big goal, if you say, I want to make 10 grand passive income in 10 or 12 years, probably doesn't change, but you might say, "Mm, I thought Charlotte was a great place. Maybe we want to look somewhere else. And this is just an example. Charlotte is definitely a great place for anybody from Charlotte.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think you kind of send my brain into, again, uncharted waters for some of the questions I had for you, but in Western Canada, right now. So it would be great if we could have bought real estate 20 years ago, or been like on old and yeah, got Vancouver.
0: You know, area, absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Vancouver. You know, whatever. Even five years ago. But now you have a scenario like I just I was pulling up RentoMeter while you were explaining that, just to see if we can figure this out. But you might be able to help listener and myself understand. So Kelowna is the town that I live in. It's about 240,000 people. Uh, the average house price is about a million and fifty average. So yeah, you have some monsters and then you have whatever, but let's use a house that's say like 800,000, which is a common family, two kids, husband and a wife, two cars kind of house by a school. So 800, that's not fancy. That's just a nice house uh, in a decent area. And you might be able to rent that for say 3,500. So it's called 40,000 a year in gross revenue. You pay 800 for it. and You got a mortgage. Like, how do you quickly vet things? And I'm having trouble vetting things quickly to see that things are actually a reasonable deal here. And so does that mean my brain needs to get out of this this zone? Or is the price appreciation more appealing here because this is a desirable California of Canada place to be?
0: Yes and no is the answer. Literally for those two questions. Pres- <laughs> um <laughs> The first thing, if that were the scenario and you were my coaching client or mentoring client, I would say, okay, Dustin, I hope you're renting because huh? if it's 3500 for an $800,000 house, it's probably not much more than 4000 for a million dollar house. Now, the question ultimately is always in that kind of scenario, is the $800,000 or million dollar house really that nice a house? Because, I mean, if I say, okay, let's look at that house in your area versus a house, some other little more remote place in Canada, you might get a massive mansion for a million or something like that, right? So, but fundamentally, my first reaction would be, I wouldn't want to own a house there unless you already gotten beyond your time freedom point. We already making your 10 grand or 12 grand or so forth in passive income because you're basically making somebody else who owns this house the money rather than for yourself. So in that scenario, and I've said this for a long time is, Unless there are some certain circumstances, I would recommend to be a tenant rather than an owner. Now, here comes the reason why. When you look at it through the investing lens, there are things that can help make it a little easier. And one of the things that I found to be one of the best very quick identifiers is what's called the one percent rule so a good performing property in your area and i realize that's not possible it's the same like when i'm in san diego or certain places in other places in the world there are just certain areas where it's normal to have an 800 900 uh, million dollar house and it's also normal to get between three and four thousand rent now what a good performing area for investing purposes is when the ratio between the price of the house and the rent is close to 1%. When we go back to what I said earlier about that $275,000 house, if you can get about $2,500 in rent, you're pretty close, right? Or if you find a $200,000 house that pays 1800 1900 in rent and stuff like that. Now, there's also the other point is, say again?
1: That's, uh, oh, the rent. Yeah, 1%. Okay. 1% yep. rule. You know, the, like
0: the rent is 1% of the purchase price.
1: A monthly rent.
0: Monthly rent. Yeah, exactly. Close yeah. To, to, or as close as possible to. Now, if you have new built houses, you know, brand new properties, it's more likely, or it's still a good deal if you can get it above 0.8%. But you shouldn't look for anything worse than that. Anywhere between 0. 08 and and 1% is a good deal. And the reason for that is even more so right now with the high interest rates on the mortgages is that you have to basically consider what do I actually pay as the owner and what can I get back in when we go back to that income letter in idea wealth grower. So if you buy the property, let's say for 200000 and you get close to $2,000 in rent, you probably with these high interest rates pay about $1,000 or so for the mortgage itself, insurance and property tax. So now you have $1,000 left. You basically pay typically 8 to 10% on property management because you obviously can't find a $200,000 house in your area. So you have to buy it somewhere where those houses exist. So you need property management to help you out with that. So let's say that's 10%. So now you have another $200 into that. That's down to $800. Then you want to have a little bit of money put aside for anything like repairs and those kind of thing reserves and it can be vacant you know when one tenant moves out and another tenant moves in so I typically advise to use at least ten percent some people say fifteen percent so that would be another two hundred dollars so then with all of that being said, you're basically down to four to five hundred dollars that is actually the real pure cash flow that comes out of that house and That is really the measure because when we say our goal is to generate $10,000 a month in passive income in the next 10 years, it is a matter of, let's just for easy calculation, say it were $500 cash flow left. Now you need basically to get to $10,000, you need 20 houses, just on the very simplest calculation. Now, if we, on the other hand, say 10 year time horizon, this is a very important point. I want your audience to listen to this. If we say today we can get $500, and I always use the example, let's say Dustin and Axel are the friendliest landlords in the world. Right? They only increase the rent by $50 a year, even though it starts at around $2,000, but we are super friendly. We don't increase it more than $50 a year. So on that first house, over the 10 years until we want to reach our goal, it will increase by $500. That means your cash flow now is $1,000 on that house. If you do this for all the other houses, then you don't need 20. You basically need 10 or probably somewhere in the area of 12 to get an initial idea of how many properties are we looking at. And that helps a little bit also to say, if you want to make 20 K in passive income, but you can only buy one house a year, then your time frame is going to be longer, If you can buy two houses a year, then you can maybe get there in 10 or 12 years. So the point on the other hand, to your original question, why I said it's yes and no. You can't make it work in Corona because the ratio between how much do houses cost and how much rent can you get is just not good. It's just not performing well.
1: If you did find one that said we could have 5000 a month in rent and the house was still 800 that's, you know, for listener, when you're trying to vet things, and again, lots of people scroll the apps, look at the listings. You know, there's a few good realtors out there that are still pushing, you know, different ideas, new ideas. But most of people are looking themselves then going and approaching somebody to go see it. But you want to be able to quickly vet things because new listings come up, you get excited. Oh, this is the one. But you want to be able to go, okay, how much rent? How much do I pay? Not good. Just forget about it.
0: The name for the strategy, when people say, what's the name or is there any strategy? I always call it the out-of-state turnkey investing strategy. And it comes from the original idea that I, when I first started investing, I only invested in renovated properties. So how does this work? A turnkey company by definition, if I were to describe it and some people have actually adopted my description, turnkey company goes out and says, let me find the ugliest duckling in a nice neighborhood. Let's see if we can convince the owner to sell it to us for a ridiculously low price. So let's say this two hundred thousand dollar house was the ugly duckling in the neighborhood, and they bought it for let's say a hundred. They know they have to put fifty or sixty thousand in to bring it up to snuff, new kitchen, new bathroom, you know, renovate everything that needs to be renovated. And in the process, they find oh shit, it's actually ten more, so we put in seventy. Then they say to Dustin and Axel, well, we have a house for you for two hundred, right? Because they want to make some profit on finding it, renovating it, selling it to someone. But the important thing, and at least for the ones that we work with, is that they are also going to be the ones that manage it for us. Hmm. That's why it's called turnkey. It's not a flipper who just says, I find a property, flip it and sell it to you. And then you're on your own. And this is a psychological thing. If you renovated it and you know, three months later, I also have to manage it for the rest of its life. Well, then i better renovate it a little better otherwise i'm the one who's constantly going out there and fixing all my flaws from my renovation and obviously as the owner you and i would say if you can't renovate you have to pay for all the stuff that didn't work out right so we also look obviously for warranties to cover those things that were touched during renovation but the long story short the main thing is a good turnkey provider allows you to invest in a property thousands of miles away from home and, or like if you live in Canada, like you do, and you want to invest in the U S you can do that. And property management is basically doing all the things after the purchase. They find you the tenant, they collect the rent. If their tenant calls and said, Hey, I thought this faucet was renovated, but it's leaking. Well, then they got to go and fix it, stuff like that. They send you the rent minus their property management fee. And you know, the only thing you have to do yourself is pay the mortgage.
1: Axel, uh, as a closing story, do you have any sort of like, I don't know what the right word is, like janky kind of like weird deals that took some heavy lifting uh, with your mind to get done? And I think listener, and, and again, for me, I like listening to stories of real estate investors where, you know, they had to use some sort of creative things and it worked out. Whether you took a risk or whether it was a hostile tenant situation, what stories come to mind when I ask the question?
0: Um Well, I I don't want to make it overly dramatic, but one story that comes to mind that is probably a little bit of an unusual thing is you mentioned at the very beginning that I also still doing a little bit, but I used to do mainly consulting for large corporations. And there was a time around uh, 2010, we were living in California, but for some strange reason, all my clients were on the East Coast. You know, like Merck and Pfizer and all these kind of now well-known names from the COVID times. Nobody knew them that much before, but I worked in that industry a lot and I constantly had to fly over there. And then we lived in the Santa Barbara area, which is very nice, but it's not connect airport wise. So we said, okay, can we go further to the east, but not too far for, since we still wanted nice weather and stuff like that. So we discovered Santa Fe, New Mexico. 50 miles from the Albuquerque International Airport. Very nice town, awesome food, good weather most of the time, great community. So we decided, okay, we buy a house there and move there. We did that in 2011. And I think the universe wanted to show me the middle finger right? and said, okay, <laughs> a renewal of your consulting contract is coming up. Let's just give you all new clients in San Francisco. Oh. So literally, we were barely moved in, and all my East Coast clients switched to a whole list of really big clients in the San Francisco Bay Area, to the extent that I actually rented an apartment there. So we did that for a while, and I flew like every other week to visit my wife, basically, for the weekend. And she ultimately said, you know, I didn't really sign up for this, and the winters are freaking cold at 7,000 feet elevation. I want the sun and the beach and stuff (laughs) back. Yeah. So I said, okay, I hear you. That makes sense. Let's go back to California. So in 2016, after trying this for four and a half years, we moved back to California. But the question was, what do we do with the house? It was a nice three-bedroom, two-bath house. I asked the real estate agent and she said, well, you can sell it. You get maybe slightly more than what you bought it for, but that's all I can Kind of promise. I said, "Well, I know you guys are also doing property management because NFA has a lot of people that own a second home there." She said, "Yeah, we could do that for you." I said, "Okay, well then let's do that. We buy the house in California and and we keep this one as an investment property, not anywhere close to where we normally invest." Performance was not quite as good as I would have wanted to see, <laughs> but still it made tiny, like a hundred dollars cash flow per month, right? So right. it didn't cost us anything. Okay. So that worked out well. And then suddenly I get a call from that agent and she says, Hey, how much would you be interested in selling this house? And I'm saying, you told me it's not that much worse, you know? So why are you calling? She said, you remember when you come into Santa Fe, you always needed to kind of crawl your way through the city. If you wanted to get anywhere and a lot of people that worked in these bigger companies or Los Alamos laboratories and stuff like that, they needed to go from somewhere close to the, Santa Fe has kind of like a four lane interstate like business circle around it. So everybody that worked in these bigger places wanted to live there. I said, yeah, that's a great story. Why are you telling me this? She said, yeah, you know, the street that goes by, right? That neighborhood where your house is. There was like a half a mile missing to connect to this kind of business loop. And guess what? They just connected it. I'm like, okay, that's great for the people that want to cut off the business. She said, no, you don't get it. Your house just jumped a hundred thousand dollars in value. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Right? Like I couldn't believe it and said, so what you're really saying is what used to be 200K is now suddenly 300K. She said, yeah, exactly. So, well, you could have opened with that
1: one. <laughs> yeah, cool.
0: So yeah, totally unexplained. And this is actually important. You have to keep in mind, I'm normally the person who tells everybody, all my clients, and so we buy something, we keep it until we go six feet under. But sometimes the deal is just too good.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good story. And it does kind of like highlight something we talk about in retirement plans is there's, you know, you can map out the best plan, but in life there's a lot of changes that happen. And you don't, some good, some bad you get inheritance, you don't. There's so many things that, you know, often we get very uh, linear and get very closed in that like, this is how it's going to be. But I think being able to be open to that and say, you know, okay, hey, this is a big boost. This is not normal for just in this shorter period of time. Okay, let's take the sale. I often remember as being a 20-year-old, one of my father's, you know, wealthy friends, I said to him, well, what would you do different?" He said, I would have never sold any piece of real estate I ever owned.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Although there's another saying that is also not really wrong, and that is nobody's ever gone broke making a profit. Right? Yeah, so, 100%. So, I, I mean, for my thinking, it was immediately, okay, we made unexpectedly overnight, basically, 100K. That means I can buy two more properties. The yeah. cash flow way better than this one, right? So, I mean, that was very unexpected, kind of quirky. I never really even realized because I worked from home or I flew into to the airport. So I never even realized that, that half my connection to the business loop was missing and that it made such a difference, but yeah, ended up being a pretty good deal.
1: <laughs> well, Axel, where if the listener wants to learn more about what you do, how you can maybe help them, where could people find you online?
0: Well, if you go to idealwealthgrower.com, that is kind of like the best starting point. If you over and look around the website a little bit, it's offering you a complimentary strategy call where we can really go for an hour into depth, get to know each other and see if I can help you. It's also offering you to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to really see a little bit on what is really included in, in the mentoring, it's a very long list of different aspects that go into this. It's not just buying and helping you to buy real estate. Uh, I advise to click on that little navigation point that says shop. And then just scroll down the list and we made a little table that shows all the different things that happen throughout the mentoring program over time. And then I have to say, when I saw it recently, it has actually grown into quite a list because what I really want to get people to ultimately get to is that you build basically what I call your empire, kind of like a family trust where all your properties are under, where you basically taking care of the future of the kids and their income and your income and your liability protection, all those kind of things. It's not just the real estate by itself. So yeah, if you click on shop and then just scroll down, you can see how it goes. And I would be happy to have a conversation with people and see, you know, if we can help you out.
1: What was the website? One more time.
0: IdealWealthGrower.com.
1: Awesome. Thanks a lot, Axel, for being on the show today
0: awesome thank you dustin
1: thank you for tuning into this episode if you enjoyed the show please like and rate the show share with a friend or use your new knowledge in your next conversation if during the show something gave you a pang of inspiration motivation or sense of uncertainty act on it now get the clarity you're looking for find the permission you seek go to ServiceWealth.com to discover how others are learning how to take fridays off or buying a recreation property or spending more money if you're an organizer of an event where you believe my philosophy on finance and lifestyle design would be applicable go to servicewealth.com and book me as a speaker at your next event if you want a copy of our new book coming out soon send me a message on instagram or facebook and we will be sure to get you a first copy